back. It's like, where did you go? What happened? It's official. We're back. I We're know. back. Listen, the haters had a. They thought they had us. They've had a good 2021 because they thought we were gone. Thought that was it. They thought it was over. <laughs> but we have a message for the haters. We're back. We back. say we're back, but we're actually, actually, we're actually, actually back. It's like the Backstreet Boys. So welcome back to Not the Politics and Religion with Patrick and Seth. Are you? Are we turning it into a jingle? I, I really hope not. <laughs> not. Yeah, I'm not. That'll be for another. But we decided to come back with a bang. Yeah, really hitting hard here. This is maybe our. I'm. I'm more excited about this episode than maybe, maybe any other episode we've done so far, wow. which is saying a lot. Wow. Yeah. So. This is a good um, one. Yeah, I. And we're very grateful to know our friend Daniel, who is on today's episode. And um, he's just like really involved in a lot of really cool things right now in the yep. Christian religious world. He works for Christianity Today, which yep. is this huge magazine a, and publication. One of their editors as well. So his editor, yeah. yeah. So we decided to bring him in and just start a conversation around evangelicalism. You know, yeah. in the past election cycle, the past two election cycles, evangelicals have been this huge block people have talked about. 81% mm-hmm. voted for Donald Trump in yep. 2016, about 79% voted for him again in 2020. And, you know, there's, and yeah, there's been lots of talk about evangelicals, but it's like uh, a lot of people, myself included at different points, don't even know what does that even mean an evangelical? You know, if you're, if you're a Christian, what makes you an evangelical? What are some of the yeah, historical things yeah. with that? So we wanted to kind of just dig deep into that. And uh, Daniel was the perfect person to kind of talk about a lot of that because he is, yeah, for sure. he's all about that. So yes. this episode is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, bringing back McManus Movie Corner. Ooh. Having a great chat with Daniel, and yeah. yeah, suck it, haters! Wild ride. Episode twenty-one. You can drink now. Our podcast, Our podcast can drink can now. Dr- oh, they grow up so fast! Oh my gosh! Literally, it feels like yesterday. We were just watching it take its first steps. Been over a year ago, I think. And now we can yeah. have a beer. In podcast years, of course. Oh yeah, in podcast yeah. years. Wow. Yeah. So welcome back. Thanks for jumping back in. We're hoping to be. A little more regular with this. Uh, yep. Our work schedules have lined up a little better. Yeah. Things have been busy. Things have been crazy. You feel it. You get it. So we're sorry about the long hiatus, but we're back. We're back. That's what matters. All right. You've missed it while we've been gone, but it's back. The McManus. Back for real. Again. Movie. McManus. Corner. McManus movie corner. I paused for dramatic effect. Um, <laughs> so... In the th- life has just been crazy. We've been busy, and in the hiatus, I've been watching some movies. Have you been watching some movies, Patrick? I've been watching one or two movies. Yeah, we've been, we've been, we've been watching movies. movies. You know, you know, it's not like you know, we're busy people, but you know, we can get down to a movie every once in a while. So the movie we wanted to talk about today is one that we both saw uh, back in the theater. It's actually, I think my first movie first back in a theater. Yeah, since a long time. Since COVID started, yeah, so it's been a minute. So we saw this movie, maybe you saw a trailer for it, maybe you didn't, called The Green Knight. The Green Knight. Um, so this movie, if you have not heard about it, I'll just give you a little overview. This movie is very interesting because it's the, the Studio A24, which does super off-the-wall indie movies and has like for quite art, a while. Art house films. Very yeah. art house movies with like ambiguous endings that get Oscar nominations every year. Some of you are into those. Some of you, it's not for you. But it's <laughs> one of, very much one of those art house movies. But the cool part is it is a fantasy movie, and it's actually based on Arthurian legend. So literally, 
a super old poem in like the, written around the 1400s. We don't even know mm-hmm. who wrote it mm-hmm. that J.R.R. Tolkien and a couple other people translated. Um, you know, they decided to make a film, an art house film adaptation on a poem about like a, a Knight of the Round Table for, for King Arthur. Yeah. So just super interesting, you know, uh, there's not a lot of English, British mythology, but this is one of those few stories that is really important to English mythology and so it's a story that they you know try to try to retell this story in a new way it stars mm-hmm. dev patel um the director made this movie that i've actually seen uh, called a ghost story also an a24 movie very interesting movie we may talk mm-hmm. about that different time um but anyways that's the green knight so it's this really really old poem that's now being made into a movie <laughs> so there's lots of political and lots of religious things going on sure behind yeah. in and about this movie so patrick what are some of the things that yeah, stood well, out to I you think, without spoiling um, i was really excited for this movie i'm a i'm a big um uh fan i guess you could say of of arthurian legends and i think we haven't had like a good movie based on all of these really old stories what about robin hood starring russell crowe it's uh, oh and that's not i mean yeah what about robin hood men in tights everyone loves robin hood what about the original disney animated classic that is that is a really good movie i do like that movie. men in tights is good for other reasons as well but um (laughs) because it's very dumb um but no you know i think a lot of arthurian movies nowadays try to like modernize it or make it seem gritty or realistic and this movie does not this movie is very um fantasy um it's very heavy on the myth on the legend on the mystery um of of these stories um that probably aren't real that are probably just legend um and and it really sticks to that for the most part um it it uh, doesn't feel like a modern film. It feels um, like they're talking in a really weird way. Uh, uh, all of the indoor shots are very dark because you know there's no lighting. Yeah, right? it's freaking so dark castle. It's really hard to see sometimes. But I think that was the point. Um, but yeah, from that as well. I mean, I think I think without spoiling a whole lot, we see this really fascinating journey of of Dev Patel's character, um, Gwen Gawain, I think is how they, they pronounce call him, like, it. Garwin in the Garwin movie. In the in the movie. movie. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Um, but but we see this this character who in the movie is very um, uh, young, ambitious. He wants to be seen as you know this this celebrated member of King Arthur's court. Um, so that's why he takes on this quest initially, and and, and it's a lot more than what he anticipated. Um, so we kind of travel with this character as he's expecting to use this this quest to fulfill his goal of of becoming this great person, of becoming something incredible. But in the end. Um, uh, things happen that don't necessarily go the way he expects yeah. um, without spoiling a whole lot. Um, but, but yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting implications um, in the fact that they kept it very heavily based in the original text, right? Uh, there's a lot of commentaries on what's, you know, the, the chivalrous thing to do, what's the right yeah. thing to do. And it's written actually um, as like a Christian moral like Yeah, you know, you know, what, you know what, in, if you're in a circumstance like this, should you do the easy thing or should you do the right thing, right? And I, and I think that's still very applicable for today, um, especially if you're in a difficult situation like this character is where you have, you, you've given your word, you've made a promise about something um, when you maybe shouldn't have made that promise and now you're really regretting it mm-hmm. um, and it could have very negative implications for you, but you've made that promise, what do you do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as well... Um, trying trying to 
put ourselves in the context of um, early medieval people is very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think this movie also communicates the level of status, right, that comes in that socio-political era, mm-hmm. right, of, of this person uh, being given a high status because of his family, because of his lineage, but he wants he wants to have that on his own. He wants to claim that himself, mm-hmm. right? Kind of a, a self made man. Because the of protagonist thing. is the is in the this movie, he's, he's the nephew of King Arthur, so he's kind of like seen as royalty, but he's also young. He hasn't done anything, yeah. um, so he really wants to make a name for himself. But also, I find it really interesting that the movie, yeah. while it is this age old story. I've, I've literally heard people that watch the movie and because they don't ever mention King Arthur by name, he's in the movie, mm-hmm. but they don't mention my name. So people had no idea that that was supposed to be King Arthur or that oh, there's sure. a shot of Merlin, sure. these like yeah. super mythological it, figures. There are like, things, there are things implied that they never, it's like know, they shrug off all of these references um, that would have gotten them more attention. They just focus on the story. It's also not an action ways. movie. No, um, you know, there's swords, there's knights, um, there's all of that stuff, but it's it's not you know you don't get these big grand fight scenes. It's it's a traveling journey. It's a it's a coming yeah. of age story kind, kind of, of. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Um, but it's fascinating. And I'll I'll briefly mention as well. I don't want to dive too much into this without spoiling a whole lot of stuff at the end. Um, but if you've seen uh, Martin Scorsese's very controversial uh, Last Temptation of Christ, um, it came out I think in the eighties. The, the things that they play off of that, the, 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 the concepts of temptation um, over, you know, doing what you know is right, um, they're also very apparent in this movie um, in ways that I haven't seen films really uh, uh, try and tackle at all. Yeah. Um, and so it was, it was very disorienting to watch, I think, yes. because of that at times. Um, but, but the more I think about it, the more I'm like, oh, yeah, that was actually like... I, th- I think for not seeing that anywhere else, they did a really good job trying to execute that. So yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. The um, yeah, and and because it's an art house movie, like the ending is so like you said, like you said, discombobulating. And I think, yeah, so it yeah. is. Yeah, Last Temptation of Jesus Christ even had like <laughs> similar to like a La La Land, which is also an Oscar contender. <laughs> yeah, very different movies, but the way they executed the ending is yes. kind of yeah. has a lot of similarities that some people will probably really like, some people will be incredibly frustrated by but also it's really one thing that was really interesting is um so (laughs) i decided to actually read the entire J.R.R. tolkien translation of the poem the day i saw the movie the day we went and saw it i I read all 100 pages of it because i'm a nerd and uh (laughs) there's one sentence so there's this big journey so that you know the starts with this kind of big confrontation at the beginning of the poem and then there's this uh long journey that he goes on and the journey is just mentioned in a sentence that going you know goes on the protagonist uh, that he he faces many troubles along the way it's like one line in the poem yeah and then it gets to like the the climax of of you know the conflict that ends the story yeah and this movie probably 75 to 80 percent of this movie's runtime is that one sentence in the, the poem. journey like, they just yeah. kind of write into what for arthurian legend for <laughs> 700 years now <laughs> has been um, 600, yeah, 600, 700 years now has just been this one sentence of ambiguous. Yeah, he faced a lot of troubles on his journey. They've tried to tell the story of what that journey could have looked like, which is very interesting. And it does have a very high fantasy approach to it. So mm-hmm. not at all. I mean, some people have compared it to Lord of the Rings, I would say in the ways of like 
the visual storytelling and like yeah. the the high fantasy. Yes, it reminds me of Lord of the Rings. If you like Lord of the Rings, you may not like this one though because <laughs> it's interesting. But I would definitely. Well, would you would you recommend it? To yeah, I mean, I I I would recommend it. I would just kind of advise you. Um, you don't need to be familiar with the poem to, to watch it. it you don't, and, and don't read it. all 100% would, day. But that's, I would yeah. I would also say, if you are familiar with the poem, that's great. You'll probably catch a lot that other people might not. But do not hold on to it too tightly. Yeah, um, just because <laughs> this is an adaptation, and there will be things that are different. Um, so if you make your peace with that before, you might enjoy it more. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I, would, I would recommend this, yeah. How many... Um, how many Green Knights would you rate this out of 10? Um, I actually gave it on my IMDb account. I gave it a 8 out of 10 Ooh, Green Knights. 8 Green Knights. Which, yeah, green. to me, the difference between an 8 and a 7. An 8 means that I, re- I like the movie and I would be willing to watch it again. A 7 uh-huh. means I liked it, but I probably don't need to watch it again. Yeah. This is one that I would, I would definitely, I actually probably will because there's a lot that I still don't understand uh, yeah, <laughs> about what happened yeah. that I want to know more about. And so, um, yeah, I mean, if you like, you know, really interesting stories, if you like uh, high fantasy, if you like some of the mythological stuff, I would say, yeah, definitely check it out. It's yeah, for sure. definitely leaves you a lot to think about. And there's, yeah, you can, you can keep kind of coming back to it. And I think you'd be rewarded for, for digging into it. So yeah. the green Knight. Yeah. now, you know, there it is. Yeah. What a year for movies. This has been <laughs> and probably will be so better than last year. Awesome. Well, let's jump into our conversation with Daniel now. Welcome, Daniel Silliman, to the show. Daniel is the news editor at Christianity Today. He is joining us this episode so graciously to talk about evangelicalism and what the heck that even is. So thanks for joining us, Daniel. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks, guys. Awesome. So um, we wanted to do an episode on evangelicalism because I know for, I think, both Patrick and I, yeah, we grew up in this very specific religious tradition, evangelical Christianity in the United States, white evangelical Christianity in the United States. And um, we didn't really, we weren't able to really place ourselves in that until we gotten some more education, probably in college. For me, it was in college. Mm. Yeah. Oh, no, definitely. Definitely the same time frame for me. Yeah. Yeah, So grow up in this tradition that we don't even know the label that it even has to people out, both outside of it and inside of it. Mm. And uh, so it's, and I would guess that a lot of our listeners are absolutely both like religiously and culturally could be labeled as evangelical Christians. But that's not really something that a lot of times evangelical Christians label themselves or talk Mm. about. So Mm -hmm. I thought just having you on with all of your research and work and um, talking a little bit about that would be helpful for the listeners. Yeah, that's not an abnormal experience. Like a lot of a lot of evangelicals, it's very um, it's it can be very amorphous what evangelicalism is. And it's often not the like main name that you go by in your own local community i mean it's a little bit it might be a little bit like finding out you have a last name right like when you're at home <laughs> no one ever addresses you by your last name that would be silly it's not really until you start yeah going farther away and mm. into difference that people start addressing you in this specific way and you're like oh oh okay that's that's who i am in this like larger context so that's pretty normal that's a yeah. that's a hallmark of evangelical experience right there Yes. And yeah, yeah, that's something I definitely have found to be true is yeah. growing up, we talked about 
we talked about what church we went to and maybe what theological beliefs we had, but we didn't talk, we didn't label ourselves evangelical. We're, oh, well, yeah, I, just, I go to this just Christian, Christian church, right? or I go to a Baptist yeah. church, or I go, mm-hmm. yeah. So, so just believer to maybe... is another one you get a lot. I'm, is, is that person a believer? I'm a believer. Oh, yes. Mm, Follower yep. of Jesus, just yes. yeah. yeah. Very relatable. <laughs> yeah. Um, so with all that said, maybe you could just help us start it off. What is evangelicalism? What is an evangelical? Help us with that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, um, I don't know if this is too early in your, in your podcast, but you've kind of walked into a, a whole, uh, academic <laughs> oh, debate oh, right no. here. <laughs> yeah. Not, not a, not a, yeah, you, you can handle it. It'll be fine. But it is, a, but it is a sort of academically among journalists and, and historians in particular, there's this kind of contest, um, over the definition of evangelicalism, and really over the kind of framework for thinking about evangelicalism um, as a broader movement, as a, as a religious movement. Um, so there's kind of three approaches. Let me just walk you through them. The first one is to answer that question by talking about politics and by talking about this group of people as a <laughs> political block, right? The most, the kind of defining feature is how they vote and how certain um, theological commitments, certain spiritual commitments, certain uh, faith commitments lead them to all vote a certain way. So this tends to be the story of the religious rights. Um, and and more recently, it's the why did 81% of this particular block of people vote for Donald Trump? Why were they sort of the most loyal block um, mm. of Trump supporters by demographics? Um, so that's kind of one approach that's especially common among sort of mainstream journalists, I think there's, but there's also a good bunch of, um, historians who kind of think that's the best way to understand evangelicals. Um, the second, the second approach, the second sort of framework is theological. Um, and this is especially popular with historians who are themselves, um, evangelicals who who personally are committed to evangelicalism and then are also studying evangelicals so anyone in the in the history in the school of like mark knoll or george marston mark knoll is a name that a bunch of people might might know he wrote a book um called the scandal of the evangelical mind that was pretty big for a while um and these these people sort of say yeah it's evangelicalism is a religious movement so we need to talk about it in terms of um, big religious commitments, big religious ideas. They use this uh, sort of um, four-part thing that goes back to this scholar named David Bevington, and it's called the Bevington Quadrilateral. Very um, fancy. That's uh, yeah, it's very fancy. I don't know why it ended up being quadrilateral. Like, he just says, here are four things, and people are like, what's, <laughs> a, must word? Be what's a word for four things? And they came up with quadrilateral. Um, and the four things are basically... They have a specific understanding of Jesus. They have a specific understanding of the Bible. They have a specific understanding of salvation. Mm. And they have a specific understanding of, of activism, of how you should live out your faith in the world and what that, and what that means. Um, I don't like either of those. I think they intuitively, naturally sound fine. Um but when you get into it they both have um some they both have some problems they're both wrong 
Um, <laughs> so, so I, I define evangelicalism as a discourse community, um, okay. which is to say it's a religious movement that's best thought of as a conversation, a broad, free-flowing conversation. And then the community, the imagined community is the technical term, the imagined community that comes out of that conversation. Um, so to circle around that a little bit, but you've got a political answer, a theological answer, and then an answer that's really focused on networks and thinking of evangelicalism as a, as a community and a conversation. Um, yeah. yeah, and a community specifically defined by we're having this conversation. Um, so the problem with the the political and theological answer is first of all, it doesn't really deal with contingency. Just as a as a historian, as a journalist, like I'm really trying to think about change. <laughs> and so any answer that just tells you evangelicals believe X and they've always believed X and they will always believe X and like this is who they are just doesn't it's not right like history moves people's priorities um things change over time um even if if you believe the same things it's often the case that like the emphasis changes over time or the context changes over time and so like it just kind of ignores <laughs> how things change um the second thing is that the political answer and the theological answer are not specific enough about the kind of thing evangelicalism is in the world it's it's um it's easy to mistake it i think for other types of actual objects in the world um like a denomination but a denomination has some kind of authority structure where a discourse community does not a discourse community doesn't have a bishop <laughs> It doesn't have a religious council. It doesn't have um, uh, a convention every year where we can decide what's important. Um, so thinking about it as a as a discourse community, as this conversation um, helps us think about the change over time, and it helps us think about um, the actual authority structures and the actual trust um, structures, and allows us to ask questions like. Okay, so it's a conversation. What holds it together? Who sets, how are the boundaries of it set? Um, who, how does it change? Um, sort of what organizes it? And that, those turn out to be really helpful questions as you, as you try and think through the history of evangelicalism is, is these organizational and structural infrastructure kinds of mm. questions. Maybe a simpler, a simple um, sort of version of what I'm what I'm talking about is um, um, like if you're trying to understand a conversation, just like a normal natural conversation, and maybe maybe you come into my house and you've got your like super smart journalist hat on and you're like, what is these? What are these people about? <laughs> um, and you would say, well, they talk all the time and they're talking about their garden and you would think okay that's what defines them these are this is a group of people that talks about a garden but then you come back a year from now and it turns out we don't have a garden this year and so that's like not something we talk about at all 
And so the subject that we talk about turns out not to be that helpful. Where if you say, man, they seem to always talk at the dinner table. <laughs> they seem to always talk um, at certain times of the day. And the thing that structures their conversation is that they're married. And the thing that structures their conversation is that they live together and share these parts of their lives together. That would actually give you, it's it's less like clear up front. They, they're, they're defined by their conversation, which, which is shaped in these ways. Like it's a little more complicated than just saying it's about their garden. Mm -hmm. um, but it actually gives you a much more sort of durable um, understanding of, of the thing that's going on, the kind of thing it is. So, yeah, so I know it's not everyone's favorite, but evangelicalism is a discourse community. It's a broad religious movement that's um that's a community and a conversation. Yeah, that's oh, great. I think you. it's a yeah, it's a helpful way to start it. And I think there is great benefit to just kind of even recognizing even just for me the simple fact that you have Christianity which has three major Mm -hmm. you know, branches, Orthodox Christianity, Catholic Christianity, and Protestant Christianity. And here we have evangelicalism, which is a branch within a branch. It is within Protestant Christianity. And it's, just, and it's kind of that. Even just recognizing that if you are a white American evangelical, that you at least trace your identity, religious identity, to that larger tree that has those different branches, I think is a helpful perspective. So I wonder mm -hmm. if you could give us a little bit, obviously we could talk for we could probably do like a four-part series on the history. I mean, there's so much to unpack. Yeah, I've done so much. We, we'd love that. I don't know how many that would be a listeners lot of fun. would love that. But, but is, could you give us just maybe like the uh, an overview of some of the historical yeah. overview of what makes evangelicalism and maybe when it started, some of those kind of bigger bigger Yeah, tracing, tracing that conversation. Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. Yeah. So, okay. So first of all, there's, um, yeah, there's the Protestant Reformation um starting in germany in the 1500s really and it um um yeah and then you get the split from the from the catholic church like to go back to there historically and i think most people will have heard of you know some of these guys martin luther john mm -hmm. calvin etc but there like notice that protestantism as a term is kind of a fiction there isn't really a thing called Protestantism. What there actually are specific churches. You're a Lutheran, you're a Calvinist, you're Church of England, you're Church of Scotland. Um, like as far as anybody's day-to-day -day life, Protestantism is, a, is an abstraction. Um, yeah. yep. And like maybe you can conceptualize it, but it doesn't have any reality. There's no sort of thing in the world that you can point to that is um, organizing Protestantism. Yeah. Unlike uh, Catholicism, where you have a pope and you have right. a... Right, yeah. or Lutheranism, which yeah. has absolutely an organizational structure. And, like, if you say, who's in charge of Lutheranism? Like, it's pretty clear. And who's in charge... Like, who uh, who decides what's cool and what's not cool within Calvinism? It's, like, there's a, there's a system, there's a structure, there's a way that that stuff gets worked out. Hmm. Um, so, so evangelicalism emerges um, in... Um, for the, for, I think for the first time in the 17th century, um, as part among Puritans in New England, as a kind of mm. starting to have conversations that go beyond denomination, it's really in these spaces where it's like congregationalists are talking to Lutherans 
are talking to Baptists um, and are starting to, to, yeah, have these discussions that aren't about and have this sense that they're like in something together, mm. that, that they're, they're involved in this thing that isn't your church and it isn't your denomination and it isn't even your specific theological particulars. It's something broader. And what really, um, what really spurs this on is the first great awakening. Um, so this, this is, we're talking pre-American revolution, 1730s, 1740s in there. And what you have is people having, um, revivals, Mm. intense religious experiences and then people um especially as as church authorities as denominational authorities try and control or dictate who can have religious experiences and who can interpret religious experiences and uh who's allowed to say things about jesus um that creates increasingly these conversations that are outside of churches and outside of church structures um and that's a thing that we can start to call evangelicalism uh side note that's not what they call it they don't actually have a word for it at that time yeah they're yeah. much like you pre-college they're just like i don't know we're doing this thing yeah um, we, we go to church here i don't know yeah <laughs> so the so a really famous figure here is george whitfield mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and and this is also the birth of methodism with john wesley and a lot of it is this kind of new new religious experiments with preaching the gospel and spreading the gospel um, that don't quite fit in the church structure. Mm-hmm. And, and then people kind of flock to them and people have this new sense of a religious identity and a religious community and a conversation that they're having that doesn't quite fit in these denominational divides. Mm-hmm. And you get new denominations like the Methodist Church or Wesleyanism or the Church of the Nazarene. Um, but but the evangelicalism is actually broader than, mm. than any of those. So then um, moving a little bit forward, you have the Second Great Awakening, which is after, it's really kind of the age of Jackson, um, Andrew Jackson. It's mm. after the uh, first American founders have mostly passed away, but before the Civil War, it's in that it's in that space. So about 1800 to 1830, and this is especially prop- popular on the American frontier. Mm-hmm. So as people are moving west, there's this new um, kind of Protestant identity that's more and more democratic, thinking small d democratic. Oh, yeah. So as the nation in the age of Jackson, increasingly has this idea of one man, one vote, increasingly has this idea that there's no legitimate form of government that you're not individually involved in, and that all like old structures and hierarchies are bad and oppressive. Um, this becomes um, a, a pretty, pretty common idea of how Christianity should work. So people start thinking, I should be able to read the Bible for myself democratically. I should have a personal relationship with Jesus, not a sort of creedal relationship with Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, being baptized as a baby into a community is much more of a like monarchical idea of a nation state mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. as opposed to being a citizen, <laughs> being an adult, free will uh, citizen. Uh, and at the same time, there's there's um, sort of two big things that happen. There's these new revivals that happen out on the you know, so first Great Awakening is revivals, second Great Awakening is also revivals, especially on the frontier. Um, and people in this case, like people will often not be involved in church on a like day to day basis, uh, but they will take a couple of weeks off in the summer while the crops are growing to go to a camp meeting. And because it's their kind of one big festival of the year, they won't just hear a Baptist. They'll hear six or seven preachers. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the, someone will get the spirit and they'll start talking and they weren't a preacher before, but they are now. And, <laughs> and, and there's the sense that like people's authority comes from their individual ability and their spiritual experience, not from an institution or not from, um i don't know a bishop somewhere (laughs) so the revival thing you're basically saying it's like woodstock for christians i mean for everyone actually for everyone yeah just yeah yeah. no it is it is yeah it is very and it's kind of it's these gatherings like you mentioned at a camp it's like a tent gathering where there's tent gathering yeah people listening to preachers open air not usually in a church building right no never in a church building four or five people preaching at the same time yeah um people being overcome by by a very pentecostally kind of thing so people start speaking in tongues people start falling out wailing yeah rolling around um it's also pretty notable that um in these camp meetings in the 1800s to 1830s you also get um african-americans preaching you know enslaved oh, okay. people having authority to proclaim the gospel yeah and what god has told them you also get women which does not happen in any organized structure of christianity at this time right there's no there's no place where black people are preaching in 18 in 1810 in 1815 mm-hmm. uh, there's no place where women are preaching. I mean, maybe in a nunnery or something, but there's no organized religion where this is happening. Um, and that is, that's part of that like democratic sense, yeah. right? Like God relates to each of us individually and equally. And mm. the Bible is open to us each equally. And your interpretation might be better than mine, but you have to prove that. You don't get to just appeal to authority or education or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you, so you get um, the Stone-Campbell movement is born in this moment, right? Mm-hmm. So if you know anything about the history, some of your readers might, of, of Stone and Campbell, they're very much in the middle of a camp meeting when they come up with yeah. the ideas that are important to... Yeah um that tradition mm-hmm. you also get a real explosion of other denominations um baptists at this point go from a very minuscule marginal part of american christianity to one of the largest denominations oh, okay. uh, yeah. and so do methodists and part of this is because um the methodists are doing circuit preaching so one preacher rides a horse <laughs> everywhere and does a big loop and just preaches in a big loop. So you have one preacher for a much larger area. He doesn't have to build a church. He doesn't have to, 
he can just sort of travel from from town to town. Mm. Um, and the Baptist embraced this idea of what's called farmer preaching. Um, so it really is like one lay person will be picked to be the preacher, um, but he's absolutely in the same station of life and has the same training as everyone else, um, which just makes the like availability of clergy much wider than any of the other churches and the um um and that 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 person's ability to connect with and speak with speak in a way that actually matters to the people that he's speaking to uh much more powerful sort of Mm. historically speaking so so you get some new denominations but but really i think it's better to think that you get the sort of new style and this new sort of generally democratic, again, small d, democratic yeah. approach. And note that this like broader sensibility is held together by revivals, by newspapers, by traveling preachers. It's not one identical theology. It's not one identical politics. Mm-hmm. Um, it actually can change a lot over time and from person to person. And every individual, based on the sort of democratic approach, is allowed to kind of deviate, right? You're allowed yeah. to say, man, I believe in everything, but that preacher was wrong about whatever, Romans 12, you know, or <laughs> um, I'm just, you know, you get stuff like um, you get a whole group of people who decide they don't believe in hell, for example, because the word doesn't appear in the Bible. So they believe in eternal death. And some kind of like darkness that comes over the unregenerate, but it's not eternal punishment or eternal torture. Um, huh. Are they still evangelical? Well, there's kind of no one in charge to tell them <laughs> that they're not. <laughs> so as long as they're Sick. still showing up to the rival revival, as huh. long as they're still subscribing to Alexander Campbell's newspaper, they're still in the conversation. Mm-hmm. So you do see breaks emerge, right? So you get. Um, Joseph Smith for a while is hanging out with these people and then oh, he goes off and does his own thing and people aren't talking to him. There's not a conversation because mm. he's asserted himself as the one and only prophet. And if you don't listen to him, then you're no longer in conversation. You're no longer a part of the same community. So it's not like no break can happen, mm. but thinking about it again as this like, well, who's talking to each other? Who's willing to show up to the same event? Um, as the kind of definitive definitive thing. And then if we jump to the to the 20th century to get to the end of our four-part series. Uh, yes. <laughs> in the 20th century, you have kind of two things that, that happen. Evangelicalism, kind of with the Civil War, it kind of fades. Like denominations become like pretty much the defining feature of religious okay. life. And there isn't this kind of larger conversation um, and then in the 20th century, you have first in the like 1930s, this thing called the mon- modernist fundamentalist controversy, wow. which is that basically every single denomination has their own version of this fight that just like keeps cropping up. Hmm. And in the fight, there's one side that wants to um, embrace new theories uh darwinism uh social darwinism they tend to all be like strong social darwinists Uh um they tend to want to get rid of the supernatural 
demythologize Christianity, um, talk about Jesus as like a great teacher, but not someone who rose from the dead because that's silly and modern people can't believe that. Mm -hmm. um, and then on the other side, the people are called fundamentalists. Um, and and this is not um, this is not the birth of a movement. This is not a conversation, but there keeps this thing keeps happening as these fights occur where like the Presbyterians are having their version of the fundamentalist modern controversy mm -hmm. and both sides of the controversy start thinking, maybe I have more in common <laughs> with fundamentalists, Baptists, Methodists, Episcopalians, mm. whatever, than I do with the modernists in my own controversy. Right, like maybe this division means that like denominations are badly organized, and we like need to resort in a way, reorganize, yeah, and cut each denomination so that there are modernist Baptists hanging out with modernist uh, um, Presbyterians hanging out with. Um, yeah, so in each denomination. And then there are people who start sort of actively saying, yeah, let's do that. Let's let's organize an ecumenical movement. Let's organize a fundamentalist movement. How do we how do we connect all of these people? Um, but there's actually a lot more energy into taking over each respective denomination. <laughs> more Presbyterians try to take over the Presbyterian church for their party than try to build alliances across mm -hmm. across the lines. And then the, the second and probably more important, from my perspective, more important thing that happens is the, the birth of what we might call a culture industry. Um, so you get the emergence of book publishers who see a market um, that's not specific to denomination, but is the sort of broader um, sensibility. Um, and they essentially create a conversation between all of these disparate con con these disparate denominations um, because they're trying to sell to all of them. <laughs> so previously you'd be a Methodist bookseller and you can only sell to Methodists, but now you can be a fundamentalist bookseller and like, whoa, that's a lot more people. Yeah. <laughs> um, you also get things like Christianity Today, the magazine that I'm a part of, started in 1957, very actively, intentionally trying to say, um, yeah, let's let's connect these broader people and we'll recognize a lot of differences. We'll recognize differences around things like baptism or communion or church structure. Um, but what we have in, in common is actually pretty important. We all share some beliefs about Jesus and let's talk. And I think to the extent that people joined that and were agreeing to talk, they became evangelicals. So the modern evangelical movement really dates to the 1950s. It's really a kind of post-war phenomenon. There's these earlier histories, but it's not quite continuous. Um, and, and probably the biggest player in this was Billy Graham um, as the sort of most famous Christian of his day. America's pastor. As someone who was very happy to be in conversation and to sort of to recognize a lot of differences and just kind of put those on hold. And like, we can work together, <laughs> keep talking. You know, he's, he's not... Um, he's not... 
he's not angry. There's a bunch of evangelicals who were like at that same time who were very quick to say to condemn people and to cut people off. Mm-hmm. Um, but Graham wants to keep you participating. He wants to yes. keep you as part of it. So as much as he can, he's going to kind of broaden that that thing. And so he and things like Christianity Today and conferences and um, seminaries and book publishers all kind of, um, yeah, start this culture that people can be a part of mm-hmm. and grow up in even though they're in a very specific church or a very specific Christian school or a very specific tradition of a youth group, you're also at the same time a part of this larger conversation and cultural movements, mm-hmm. even though you don't know that it's called evangelicalism. Yeah. yeah. That was my short version, but that was like, <laughs> too long. We only went from... 1730 to 1980s 1990s so to be fair that was that was a whirlwind that was fantastic (laughs) no that's great i feel like it it helps us like paint the the bigger picture with some broad strokes there well and i and i think it's um i imagine it's uh documenting and 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 finding all of these is a little different than following you know a, a specific denominations path through history because as you said you know it's so it's so decentralized of a movement Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's really like the key component um, out, out of this movement. So I, I can definitely see that. Um, I'm curious if you want to jump in uh, and, and talk about how how this group that is so decentralized uh, is is so influential, especially in, in, in the, the version we see today. Right. Did that did that start mostly with Billy Graham and, and his big, you know, societal pushes or, or where, where does that come from? Mm. I think there's probably some dispute on how influential it is. Mm. Um, there's definitely some some evangelicals who see themselves as pretty culturally marginal and yeah, and feel like they want to influence the nation and don't actually very much. That's a good point. Um, and I also increasingly hear from from non-evangelicals or from from ex-evangelicals who feel like it's kind of a myth like there's so much attention there's just like evangelical drama queens have somehow claimed the story and we should talk Uh more about these other these other groups Uh um but they have had a, a a certain amount of influence i think it's not like it's not an unfair question some of that's a political story um the evangelicals and particularly white evangelicals. I mean, I think the broader story I'm telling it's it's a it's a multi-ethnic um, mm. okay. and multi-class movement. Absolutely. But yeah. but specifically, white and middle-class evangelicals get um, aligned with um, a certain faction of the Republican Party. Um, and get yeah. called the religious right. That's kind of the name that gets used for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and that happens really in the 1980s. I mean, it starts earlier. There's a there's a big push for it in the 1960s, but it really starts in the 1980s with Reagan. So, right? Reagan aligned with Reagan. Reagan's the first victory that uh, that block of evangelicals sort of go to the nearest microphones and claim credit for. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's kind of funny because 
you know, Jimmy Carter, the president before Reagan, is himself an evangelical and talks yeah. about being born again and he teaches Sunday school and um and Reagan is not. Um mm. and Reagan is also divorced and remarried and he's a movie star. He kind of doesn't know anything about evangelicals. Mm. Uh but he's happy for the support. Um, which is not that dissimilar to what happens in um, 2016, right? Uh, yeah. a, a, a political candidate who is not actually himself part of this movement mm. sees these people supporting him, and he's like, great. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you guys are wonderful. What do you yeah. want? Like, what do, I, what do I need to do to, to reward you? Um, and that's a pretty, I think that's a pretty natural political process, right? Like, yes. if you're a union person you don't vote for the other union person just because they're a union person and you might vote for a non-union person if they'll give you the things that you think will actually help your constituency so it's like not a i think sometimes it gets painted as like an especially crazy hypocritical uh approach but i think it's just sort of normal politics basically very much so yeah um yeah so as a political group um after 1980 they're an identifiable block. You can poll them. Like, there's a big story about how polling makes evangelicalism an, ide- a, 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 an available, clear identity for people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really starting in 1980s that self-identified evangelical is a thing. Like, people call mm-hmm. you, ask you on the phone, are you an evangelical? And you can say yes. Um, mm-hmm. So you get a bunch yeah. of people who, like, don't go to church. Mm-hmm. Um but are self-identified evangelicals. Yep. Uh, you get a bunch of people who are evangelical just because they align with the politics, but maybe not connected in any other in any other way. Mm-hmm. I think you know, but I think another part of your story is that um, it is because they're so decentralized that um, that pretty much anyone can can make an argument to be speaking on their behalf. Mm. Um, which gives a lot of people opportunities to be the spokesman for evangelicals. Yeah. And if you can kind of correctly predict what people are going to do and you can command a microphone and, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. So it gets to be a complicated story, but, but I I do think that part of it is that, um, like a lot of people emerge uh, claiming to speak on behalf of of evangelicals and um but yeah it grows to be by the 1970s 1980s um depending on like how you how you try and define the demographic whether you do self-identified or whether you try and ask people a couple of questions that like mm-hmm. would classify them um it gets to be between a quarter and a third of the united states is so it's a big chunk of people um sometimes it even gets described as like america's folk religion like it's just the kind of default this is the way we think (laughs) this is Mm. the approach things um you know billy graham is the most popular person year after year in polls um but it's still you know it's still culturally a pretty um pretty much a subculture so like in the 1980s if you want to buy uh an evangelical novel you have to go to a specific evangelical store 
You can't go to a regular bookstore. You can't go to the bookstore in the mall. You can't go to the bookstore in the airport. You have to find a special Christian <laughs> bookstore. Hmm. So in in my book, um, Reading Evangelicals, which is coming yeah. out in October, yes. one of the stories I track is how this subculture <laughs> breaks out yeah. um, and starts to be sold at places like Walmart. Um, and that's, there's a moment in time where that, where that happens and, and where Walmart as a major corporation is looking to identify with a large group of consumers and identify with them specifically on a values basis. Like we want to, we want these people to think we share your values, right? With the things that you care about, we also care about, and we're on the same side, whatever like conflict you're you think is going on in the world like we're on the same side whatever that is yeah we're not gonna define it you know what we're talking about um (laughs) and it turns out a really like easy way to do that is to start selling religious literature like that Mm. sends the message pretty pretty quickly um and if you think about it like you couldn't start selling at that point um like the baptist guide to why baptism has to be by immersion you couldn't sell like the Presbyterian reason that elders are important for any legitimate church and bishops are evil, but so is congregational ministry, right? It needs to be kind of a general, like a pretty broad. And yeah. so evangelical books served that purpose really well. They spoke about values. They spoke about um, deep religious commitments, but in a way that was uh pretty open and pretty flexible and and appealed to a lot of people so you do see this like very distinct subculture of evangelicalism become more and more widely available in the 20th century yeah i think that's that's really for me personally that's been eye-opening to just understand even just some of those more recent shifts and i'm glad you mentioned your book because you did want to highlight that um in october so if this conversation is interesting to you you feel like you'd want to know more about kind of the history of evangelicalism and even specifically the the way that bookstores and, and publishing has really impacted this yeah. religious movement, which has impacted politics, which has impacted global. I mean, it's impacted the entire world through the, a lot of those ripple effects. So definitely in, in October, check out uh, Daniel's book. Remind <laughs> me, the uh, the name of that book is If You Reading Care About the World, buy this book. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, if you want me to yeah. write an endorsement on the back, if you're selling those, you know, we can... <laughs> I think they've already printed them, but can you go to the store and just do it by hand? Just write in, if you care about the world, read this. Absolutely, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, you know, another, yeah, so it's Reading Evangelicals, um, and it's a history of best-selling Christian fiction and Mm -hmm. book markets. And part of, you know, part of what I tried to highlight, I picked five novels that have sold more than a million copies and sort of tell the story of those novels and tell like what is the sort of central concern and what are they trying to ask the readers to imagine um and one of the things that you see when you do that is it's a bunch of different things so i mean every every best-selling evangelical novel is kind of about belief um and like the question is something like what does it mean to live out your faith today in a world like today but they all have kind of different answers yeah so so like left behind you know left behind is really focused 
sells 65 million copies, has 16 volumes. Um, it's about the end time. But it's really focused. The like core question actually isn't about the apocalypse. The core question is um, when something seems really super obvious to you and other people don't see it at all, what do you do? How do you live out your faith in a world that's that like pluralistic? That's the core question. Um, but then another novel um, like um, The Shunning, which is the first Amish romance. If you go to mm-hmm. Barnes & Noble now, you'll see like a whole aisle of books with yes. women with bonnets on the cover. And these are all evangelical novels yeah. with Amish characters and Amish settings. And it's kind of an Amish fantasy in the same way that like regular romance novels are sent, set in the Regency. Um, and the central question of those is how to be authentic. The central question of those is, you know, as a as a woman with certain expectations, with community limitations, with desires that match and don't match those limitations, how do you be an authentic person, and how do you how do you be your true and full and whole self? Now that's kind of like. What do you do when your neighbor thinks you're crazy? But it's not the same. No. Yeah. <laughs> and my sense of evangelicalism and my sense of evangelicalism as a discourse community is that it's both these things at once yep. and that these are both options. And there's actually other options, too. And you're totally allowed to hate one of these books <laughs> in the same way that you're allowed. You can totally hate one of these books and be an evangelical in the same way that you're allowed to, like, be a family conversation and like dislike other people's opinions. You know, there's sure. multiple ways to exist in this space uh-huh. um, all at the same time. <laughs> yep. And so that's part of why for me, like focusing on, on book history and for focusing on like the history of Christianity today or something like that mm-hmm. is really helpful. Cause it's like, what's the structure that holds this stuff together when it can actually be a bunch of different things at once. Yeah. I think that, then definitely you can see that shift because like like you mentioned with Walmart, but I mean, any bookstore that you would go, even though bookstores are dying out right now, mm. <laughs> I remember, you know, uh, when I was younger, I, like books, any bookstore you go to, there's going to be a Christian section and it's going to be stocked with those, what you mentioned. And like, those are images that I have from just being a kid yeah. and just seeing that, um, but to understand some of the history of that. And also those pieces, like, um, like you mentioned the, in the in the overall historical view, though, I like the discourse community language because I think as you were explaining the first Great Awakening, the second Great Awakening, mm-hmm. you know, wartime mm-hmm. and all those different shifts, um, what what is actually going on is a conversation mm-hmm. between folks, and and that's what um, shapes it. And I think that even is what shapes a lot of that today in those shifts. And I think we're even in a in a shift right now within evangelicalism, especially in the COVID era, like that has obviously created so many far-reaching implications for what religion and church attendance and even book sales. And Mm -hmm. and it's prompted conversations that I don't think churches have ever had to face together as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder... um, And I do wonder, I mean, I do, I I think a good question is, um, like, what is the infrastructure of our conversations that that organizes our communities of conversations? you know, we don't, it's not like there are no Christian bookstores anymore, but there's yeah. kind of 
dramatic demise. Yes. You know? you know, and so if you walk into a Christian bookstore and you pick up uh, a book, you may like it, you may not like it, but you have a sense of its relationship to all these other books mm-hmm. and all of these other options um, and all of these other like conversations that are kind of linked together by this physical space in a strip mall in the suburbs. Um, I don't know what happens when you're buying a book on Amazon. I mean, I know what happens, but like, what's the sense of community? Who's the algorithm telling you that you're connected to? But then we also like have a lot of social media. So those are absolutely conversations. Um, But we might we might be seeing a kind of like fragmentation where instead of there being one sort of distinct evangelicalism, there's more these people over here who don't really talk to these people over here who don't really have any connection with those people over there. Um, I don't know. I don't, I'm not quite sure that that's right, but I, I do. Um, I do think it's worth, it's worth learning about the history Mm. Um, and it's worth thinking about it in this framework as a way to kind of help us think about these moments um, and and the change that we're living through. Mm. Um, and change that you're living through is just always really hard to see <laughs> as it's happening. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think a big part of, and I think I've mentioned this on previous episodes, but, mm. you know, a big part of my story, the more I've understood about evangelicalism and my place in it, um, even more recently for me, it's been um, in some ways kind of distancing myself from that. Like as I've looked back at some of those historical things that I just didn't know about, I look back at the history that kind of my faith traces itself to. There's things mm-hmm. that I just realized, oh, when I look back, some of these people that were <laughs> that the evangelical or the fundamentalists were in opposition to, I actually agree with them. <laughs> and while I, I recognize the the tradition that raised me and taught me faith, and I, I appreciate many things about that, and many of the incredible things I've learned in, in the culture that kind of raised me, mm-hmm. I think where I am now with my faith, I've distanced myself. So I, I, at this point, would not call myself an evangelical. That's obviously a conversation. That, that's, that's even been a movement, is an exodus from evangelicalism, is the more people I think have identified it and recognized it, the more maybe there's been some of those other groups that are beginning to form outside of it, around it, adjacent to it, and then people that are just up and leaving and even trying to find community outside of it, that type of thing. Is there is there a shift? So I, do, yeah, I think that's absolutely right, though I do wonder with some of those movements if they have um, let people have authority who totally don't have authority mm-hmm. define evangelicalism. Like, part of being an evangelical um, is, well, there are more gatekeepers than there are actual gates. <laughs> That's very true. Which is not to say there are no gates, but there's just a lot of people sort of hanging out, declaring, well, if you don't follow this, then you're out. And yeah, it's like, I, I've heard it called a theological stop and frisk, <laughs> like bouncer at the door. But as an evangelical, you're actually empowered to ignore those people. Yeah, that's kind <laughs> right? of the whole thing. Like, yeah. well, that's not what my Bible tells me. That's not what the Holy Spirit says to me. That's not, you know, what I have found in my personal relationship with Jesus. Like, there's just, and again, I'm not, I'm, like, I'm not to say that there should be no authority and that you should. Mm-hmm.